Section 61 of the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 61. The Battle of Jutland, 1916, by W. McNeil Dixon. The swift cruiser raids on the east coast of England served a double purpose. They wounded British while they heartened German homes. They had, however, a military as well as a political object. To entice, said a German sailor who was present, the British fleet out of port. In the first place, he remarked, our small cruisers, which were packed full of mines, had strewn the local waters with them. In the second place, we had shown the Englishman was always boasting of his command of the sea that he cannot protect his own coast in the third place we have given the inhabitants of england and especially the people of yarmouth a thorough fright these then were the aims illustrating clearly enough german tactics and german psychology in the first raid on yarmouth on november third nineteen fourteen the attacking vessels were invisible from the shore in the autumnal haze and were too distant and too frightened themselves to do much damage. In the second, on December 16th, the casualties were heavy in Hartlepool, Whitby, and Scarborough. Many women and children were slaughtered, and churches and houses wrecked, the firing being quite indiscriminate and at a venture. Once more in the mist, the German vessels, retiring at full speed, escaped their pursuers. The third was planned, but intercepted. On January 24, 1915, Admiral Beatty's patrolling squadron sighted a German fleet of four battlecruisers, accompanied by a number of light cruisers and destroyers, making for the English coast and distant from it about 30 miles. Without hesitation, the Germans turned and fled at their best pace for home. A grim chase and a running fight ensued. The disposition of the German guns, for their vessels are more heavily armed for flight than for pursuit, gave them some advantage, while the British in the rear could bring to bear only their bow guns, and not broadsides upon the escaping raiders. During the greater part of the engagement, only the leading British ships, Lion and Tiger, came within reasonable range of the enemy. It should be borne in mind that in a general engagement, however desirable it may be for the superior force to close with the enemy and thus ensure his destruction a complete overlap must first be established by superior speed until that is obtained the enemy screen of destroyers thwart any such attempt by dropping mines the line of which cannot safely be crossed to secure a close range with the great ships racing at thirty miles an hour one marvels that the range could be kept at all yet the fire was deadly. The unhappy Blucher, a great 15,000-ton ship, but slower than her colleagues, fell out of the line shockingly mangled and was torpedoed out of existence by Arathusa. The rest fled on. Favored by fortune, for a lucky shot disabled one of Lyon's feed tanks, they reached in melancholy straits their own minefields, which forbade further pursuit but when last seen the flames were mounting on Sadlitz, the next in line, as high as her masthead, and Durflinger ahead of her, 
was in hardly better case some hundreds of grateful survivors were picked up by the british from blucher's crew one of whom is reported to have said on land we can beat you but here no despite the german tales not a single british vessel failed to return and the casualties were very few this action gave pause to germany licking her wounds and nursing unhappy memories she decided to forego for a time the pleasures and political advantages of raiding and to spread for britain less costly lures a half-hearted attempt on lowenstoff which had little serious result was indeed made in april nineteen sixteen a half-hour's friendly call sir john jellicoe would have preferred a longer visit but in these matters germany preserves a rigid etiquette of raids great and small it may be observed that they are the only activities no great things left to the german navy powerful as it is other and better occupations indeed it has none no mercantile marine to protect no mines to sweep no transports or wide extent of coast to guard a raiding squadron can choose its own hour dash out at night or in fog fire at anything it may chance to see trawler or trader fisher or warship enemy or neutral and return at express speed of these trivial achievements is it possible that so great a fleet debarred from all other undertakings can really be proud come now to that stern and decisive conflict which clinched as it were the naval situation the battle of jutland in respect of all particulars that make a battle great the magnitude of the forces engaged the scale of the operations and the significance of the results the fiercest clash of fleets since trafalgar fought on a summer's day the eve of the glorious first of june so famous in the annals of the british navy it compares in hardly a single feature with any naval conflict in history except perhaps with that minor action in the bight of heligoland which in some fashion it resembles for like that it was a far-flung and dispersed series of conflicts a clashing of ships in mist and darkness or in patches of short-lived light at extreme range to avoid the deadly torpedo attacks the great war vessels pounded each other amid haze and smoke screens behind which the germans when pressed withdrew from sight wounded vessels drifted out of the scene and left their fate in doubt destroyers dashed to and fro attacking and retreating ships the flames licking their iron mass a hundred feet aloft loomed up for a few moments only to vanish in the mist as was anticipated the germans put their trust chiefly in torpedo attacks easily made against approaching difficult to direct against retiring vessels throughout destroyers on both sides played a magnificent and conspicuous part the hussar tactics of a naval action but so numerous were the vessels engaged and so dim the weather that a certain confusion inseparable from the conditions reigned the entire day indubitably a long hoped-for opportunity had come to the british the german fleet had actually emerged in strength and upon an enterprise yet emerged only to withdraw to tantalize and if possible to lure into fatal areas the pursuing foe to understand even in a measure this immense conflict one must bear in mind that the british grand fleet under sir john jellicoe was on may thirtieth actually at sea to the north of sir david Beatty's battle cruisers who on the thirty-first 
having completed his sweep, turned away from the south to rejoin the commander-in-chief. Since the tactics which led to it cannot be here disclosed, let us pass at once to the encounter itself. At half-past two, Beatty received signals from his light cruiser squadron that the enemy was out and in force. A seaplane scout went aloft and confirmed the signals. German battlecruisers were in sight, but falling back upon probably still stronger forces. To engage or not to engage was hardly Beatty's problem. Should he at all cost pursue and counter and detain the foe, or avoiding more than a mere exchange of shots, continue on his course to join Admiral Jellicoe. Faint heart never won a great decision. He chose the heroic, the British way, and determined to force the battle, to engage the enemy in sight. We may perhaps best understand the action if we divide it into three stages. A. Pursuit. B. Retreat. C. Again Pursuit. The first, that in which Beatty was engaged with the enemy's battlecruisers falling back upon their main fleet, which lasted about an hour, from 3.48, when the opening shots were fired, till the German high seas fleet showed itself at 4.38. At this point, Beatty swung round to draw the enemy toward Jellicoe approaching from the north, and the second stage of the battle began in which the British were heavily engaged with a greatly superior force, in fact the whole German navy. They had, however, the assistance of the 5th Battle Squadron under Evan Thomas, four powerful battleships which had come up during the first phase, fired a few shots at the extreme range of about 12 miles, and took the first fire of von Scheer's battleships. Steaming north now instead of south, Beatty slackened speed to keep in touch with the heavy ships. This stage of the action also lasted about an hour or more, when about six o'clock Jellicoe came in sight five miles to the north, and the third phase began. Beatty, toward the end of the second stage, had drawn ahead of the enemy, pressing in upon and curving around his line, and now drove straight across it to the east, closing the range to 12,000 yards, with two objects, first, to bring the leading German ships under concentrated fire, and second, to allow a clear space for Jellicoe to come down and complete their destruction. It was a masterly maneuver which enabled the third battle cruiser squadron, in advance of Jellicoe, under Admiral Hood, to join at once in the battle and assist in crumpling up the head of the German line. The supreme moment had come. Jellicoe's great fleet was in line behind Hood, bearing down on von Scheer in overwhelming force. By beautiful handling, the British admiral effected the junction of his fleets in very difficult conditions. There still remains in naval warfare much of the splendid pageantry of old, which in land operations is gone beyond recall. The grandest sight I have ever seen, wrote an officer in the fleet, was the sight of our battalion, miles of it, fading into mist, taking up their positions like clockwork, and then belching forth great sheets of fire and clouds of smoke, but the prize was snatched from the British grasp. It was already seven o'clock, and the evening brought with it the thick North Sea haze behind which, and his own smoke-screens, von Scheer turned and fled for his ports. Great care was necessary, wrote Sir John Jellicoe, to ensure that our own ships were not mistaken for enemy vessels. By half-past eight or nine practically all was over, save for the British destroyer attacks, which lasted far into the darkness, 
on the scattered and fleeing enemy. Only two hours of a misty daylight had been left to Sir John Jellicoe to accomplish his task. Then came night, and in the night the shattered and shaken Germans crept, one if not quite clear by what route, through their minefields to the blessed security of protected harbors. Had the weather been different, well, who knows whether in that case the German fleet would have put to sea. Now as ever in naval warfare, commanders must choose conditions the most favorable to their designs. The British admiral remained on the scene of the battle, picking up survivors from some of the smaller craft till after midday, 1.15 p.m., on June 1st. On that day not one German ship was in sight on a sea strewn with the tangled and shapeless wreckage of proud vessels, the melancholy litter of war. Perhaps Jutland, inconclusive as it seemed, may yet be judged by the world the true crisis of the struggle, while Germany, after her manner, poured forth to the skeptical world tidings of amazing victory. Britain, too, after her manner, said little save bluntly to record her losses, and later published merely the reports of the admirals engaged. They are very plain and matter-of-fact, these documents, without brag, so they can be recommended to the attention of seekers after truth. For lovers of romance, of course, the German versions will afford brighter reading. Here, however, is the unofficial account of a midshipman on board one of the battleships. We were all as cheery as punch when action was sounded off. The battle-cruisers, which, by the way, were first sighted by your eldest son, who went without his tea to look out in the foretop, were away on the bow, firing like blazes and doing a colossal turn of speed. I expect they were very pleased to see us. The battle-fleet put it across them properly. We personally strafed a large battleship, which we left badly bent and very much on fire. They fired stink-shells at us, which fortunately burst some distance away. They looked as if they smelled horrible. We engaged a zep which showed an inclination to become pally. I think it thought we were Germans. Altogether it was some stunt. Yes, you were right. I was up in the foretop and saw the whole show. I told you I was seventeen hours up there, didn't I? Simply bristling with glasses, revolvers, respirators, ear protectors, and whatnots, I cannot imagine anything more intensely dramatic than our final junction with the battle cruisers. They appeared on the starboard bow, going at tremendous speed and firing like blazes at an enemy we could not see. Even before we opened first, the colossal noise was nearly deafening. The Grand Fleet opened fire. We commenced by strafing one of the Kaisers that was only just visible on the horizon, going hell for leather. The whole high sea fleet was firing like blazes. It is the most extraordinary sensation I know to be sitting up there in the foretop, gazing at a comparatively unruffled bit of sea, when suddenly about five immense columns of water about one hundred feet high shoot up as if from nowhere, and bits of shell go rattling down into the water, or else, with a noise like an express train, the projectiles go screeching overhead and fall about a mile the other side of you. You watch the enemy firing six great flashes about as many miles away, and then for fifteen seconds or so, you reflect that there is about two tons of sudden death hurtling toward you. Then, with a sigh of relief, the splashes rise up, all six of them, away on the starboard bow. 
on the other hand there is a most savage exultation in firing at another ship you hear the order fire the foretop gets up and hits you in the face an enormous yellow cloud of cordite smoke the charge weighs two thousand pounds rises up and blows away just as the gentleman with the stopwatch says time and then you see the splashes go up perhaps between you and the enemy behind the enemy perhaps or if you are lucky a great flash breaks out on the enemy and when the smoke is rolled away you just have time to see that she is well and truly blazing before the next salvo goes off i had the extreme satisfaction of seeing the lutzzau get a salvo which must have caused her furiously to sink there are minor sideshows too which contribute greatly to the excitement we also discharged our large pieces at the rostock but she was getting such a thin time from somebody else that we refrained from pressing the question her mainstay and after funnel had gone she was quite stationary and badly on fire we sighted submarines two in number and also large numbers of enemy destroyers one of which we soundly strafed so soundly in fact that it gave up the ghost well when i climbed down from the foretop late last night i was as black as a nigger very tired and as hungry as a hunter i having missed my tea i wish you could have seen the state we were in between the decks water everywhere chairs stools radiators tin baths boots shoes clothes books and every conceivable article chucked all over the place we didn't care a fig because we all thought of der tag on the morrow which we all expected destroyers and light cruisers were attacking like fury all night and when i got up at the bugle action at two a m i felt as if i had slept about three and a half minutes at about three a m we sighted a zepp which was vigorously fired at it made off quam celerime which means quick with a capital q look now a little more closely at the details and episodes of this engagement picture a calm and hazy sea and spread over an immense area the fleets of larger ships surrounded by screens of light cruisers and destroyers furiously engaged in encounters of their own battles within the greater battle and one sees how entirely this action lacks the classic simplicity of such engagements as the nile or trafalgar but the main movements are clear enough the heaviest losses of the british were sustained in the earlier of the germans in the latter stages when the efficiency of their gunnery became rapidly reduced under punishment while ours was maintained throughout hardly was beatty in action before he lost two battle cruisers indefatigable and queen mary later invincible the flagship of the third cruiser squadron went down with admiral hood who had brought his ships into action ahead in a most inspiring manner worthy of his great naval ancestors throughout that day of thunderous war the destroyers dashed to the torpedo attacks on the great ships careless of the heart-shaking deluge of shells utterly careless of life and youth and all else save the mighty business in hand and when night put an end to the main action continued their work in the uncanny darkness under the momentary glare of searchlights or the spouting flames from some wounded vessel and all the while the unruffled sea appeared we are told like a marble surface when the searchlights swept it and moving there the destroyers looked like venomous insects black as cockroaches on a floor 
never in the proud history of her navy have english sailors fought with more inspiring dash more superb intrepidity so ended the battle of jutland but this you may naturally say is very different from the german story there is no denying it the discrepancy exists make the most liberal allowance for national prejudices and you cannot harmonize diversions which then are we to believe there are no independent witnesses that can be summoned into court how can one decide between statements so conflicting there is one way and only one way victories like everything else in the world have results a tree is known by its fruits if indeed therefore the germans won as they claim a great victory they were certainly first in the field with the news unless there should be any mistake in the matter made the announcement at express speed how the announcement apart do we know of it we have of course the kaiser's assurances to his people and that is of great importance but did he also announce that the british blockade would no longer harass germany oddly enough it was not mentioned and since the battle has become much more stringent do german merchantmen now nineteen seventeen go to sea none are to be found on any waterway except as before in the baltic on the other hand let us ponder these facts immediately after the engagement the great naval port wilhelmshaven was sealed with seven seals so that no patriotic german could look upon his victorious ships britain proclaimed her losses germany concealed her wounds later she discovered that she had accidentally in her haste overlooked the loss of a few trifling vessels end of section sixty one